Hello, welcome back to Resurrections, and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano, and as you can see by the title of this episode, it is time once again for the best event ever crossover. In case you've forgotten from the last two years, or you just weren't listening yet and didn't know, about once a year, myself and a group of other podcasters and bloggers get together to cover a different comic book event with the title, Best Event Ever. This year, we are covering DC's 1995 crossover, Underworld Unleashed. And specifically, I will be covering the issue, Abyss Hell Sentinel, featuring the Golden Age Green Lantern, Alan Scott, plus a couple other DC's magical characters, including Fate, Phantom Stranger, Etric and the Demon, and Zatanna. Don't worry if you are not familiar with Underworld Unleashed or those characters. I am going to be doing a quick primer for those. In fact... If you have listened to my other show, The Pop Culture Palace Presents, you know I already put up one of my episodes for Best Event Ever uh, the other week. I covered uh, The Ray Issue 18. And in it, I did do a little quick primer what Underworld Unleashed is. So, to save time, and because I'm lazy, I'm just going to reuse that, and then I'll just, at the end of that, tell you what things are changed for this issue. Now, if you enjoyed this and you want to hear more of coverage of Underworld Unleashed, I will, towards the end of the episode, give you a listing of the other shows and blogs that are participating in this, and there will be links in the show notes to all of them. Very easy to find. Alright, let's get started. I probably should also explain Underworld Unleashed, just in case you didn't know what that was either. Underworld Unleashed was an event that DC Comics did in the fall of 1995. The main three-issue miniseries was written by Mark Wade, with art by Howard Porter. The main point of the series is that the demon lord Neron has come to Earth looking to buy some souls. In the first issue, he contacts most of the villains of the DCU and offers them either greater power or some other heart's desire in exchange. Many of them take him up on it, including Lex Luthor, Cerise, the Joker, Abracadabra, Blockbuster, the Cheetah, and Major Disaster. While this issue is technically considered part 21 of the crossover, that really doesn't matter. After issue 1 of Underworld Unleashed, either the effective villains or Neron himself went after the different heroes of the DC Universe in their individual titles. There's no real reading order for that. The only reading order that sort of counts is that this issue takes place after Underworld Unleashed number 1, and most likely before number 2. Now like I said before, there are links to all the other podcasts and blogs in the show notes, but the only one you really could listen to first if you want to is Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode 109, because they are covering Underworld Unleashed number one. If you want to listen to that one first, I totally understand. Go to the link and listen to them. I already did, it's a really good episode. You can come back here when you're done. In fact, while you do that, I'm going to go listen to a promo for another podcast, and I'll catch back with you after that. A few notes just to update that for this issue. I've seen a couple different reading orders for this storyline. I've seen some places where this issue is called Part 41, and some where this is called Part 26. It really doesn't matter, like last time. All you need to know is that this takes place after Issue 2 and before Issue 3. Now, like I said, if you want to catch up on exactly what's going on, go listen to the episode of Cosmic Treadmill where they cover Issue 1. And Mark Sweeney's ITG podcast has covered Issue 2. So why don't you go listen to those two first? Then come back to listen to this one. I'll wait, and I'm going to play a promo now while I'm waiting for you to come back. Evolution is a constant, even for the world's greatest superheroes. Founding members have departed, 
New members have stepped in to fill the ranks, and their final memories of Happy Harbor are of a stunning betrayal and the loss of their secret sanctuary. But there is only one place to go for the Justice League of America as they march into the Bronze Age of Comics, straight up! More precisely, 22,300 miles up above the Earth. Welcome to a bold new era for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast. Your host, Mike Peacock, invites you to make yourself comfortable for over 100 issues and their very first annual with the League as they enter the much-beloved satellite era. Here's a brief sampling of the thrills and chills that await your podcast catcher. A veritable who's who of new members, such as the Elongated Man, Red Tornado, Satana, and Firestorm. Surprise membership returns. More epic team-ups with the Justice Society of America, along with appearances by the Legion of Superheroes, the All-Star Squadron, the New Gods, and even a combination of the DC Universe's greatest heroes of history. A galaxy of superstar writers such as Denny O'Neill, Len Wein, Steve Englehart, and Jerry Conway. The longest artistic run in the book's history by the astonishing Dick Dillon, along with contributions by Neil Adams, Don Heck, George Tusca, Rich Buckler, and George Perez. All this and more surprises and excitement await you in this new phase of Justice's First Dawn. Come along with Television's Era Certified Super Friends at classicjla.podbean.com or subscribe to the show via iTunes. Oh yeah, and there's the debut of Ultra. Yay! Now, since this is usually a Marvel Comics-based podcast, I am not sure how much my regular listeners know about DC. For any of you who are here because of the Underworld Unleashed crossover, I'm going to assume you know this stuff. But you're welcome to listen along as I give you all a brief rundown on just who Alan Scott is. Alan Scott was the original, or Golden Age, Green Lantern. First appeared in All-American Comics number 16, July 1940. Created by Bill Finger and Martin O'Dell. He worked as a train engineer and survived a train crash to find a glowing green lantern. He used a ring carved from that to channel its power, though he had a weakness to wood instead of yellow like the later Green Lanterns. He also had his own oath, and I shall shed my light over dark evil, for the dark things cannot stand the light, the light of the Green Lantern. Like many Golden Age heroes, he mostly fought gangsters, spies, and mad scientists, but two of the actual supervillains he did fight were Solomon Grundy and Vandal Savage. Yes, Solomon Grundy from Super Friends, if you watch that, you know who that is. And for more on Vandal Savage, go listen to my other show, Pop Culture Palace Presents, Episode 17, which was also part of this Best Event Ever crossover. Alan was a founding member of the Justice Society of America, and he was the first one to leave because he was popular enough to get his own title. Green Lantern Number 1 came out in the fall of 1941. Took him less than two years, not bad. Back then, once you were popular enough to have your own book and not just be part of an anthology series, you left the JSA so another lesser-known character could have the spotlight and hopefully become popular enough to get their own series. Imagine if they did that now. Well, Batman's getting pretty popular. We gotta take him out of the Justice League. Can't have someone that popular in the book. Like most Golden Age superheroes, he faded away after World War II. The last issue of his solo series was issue 38, cover dated May-June 1949, 
and his last appearance was in a JSA story, he eventually rejoined. In All-Star Comics number 57, cover dated February-March 1951. He returned, along with the rest of the Justice Society, in Flash number 137, cover dated June 1963, and would for the most part be a part of the DCU from then on. His powers were very much like any other Green Lanterns, except, like I said before, for weakness to wood instead of the color yellow. He also had a very different costume. Green pants, red boots, kind of puffy, red shirt, with a yellow circle in the middle and a picture of the lantern on that. A domino mask and a high-collared cloak, kind of similar to Doctor Strange's, that's purple on the outside and green on the inside. It's pretty wild. I'll put a link to a picture in the show notes. Check it out. Now, at this point in the DCU, Alan's status had been revised a bit. First, his source of power was retconned to be something called the Starheart. Thousands, or maybe millions, of years ago, the Guardians of Oa, the bosses of the Green Lantern Corps, gathered up most of the magic in the universe, bundled it together into an orb called the Starheart, and that was placed into the center of a star. It eventually became self-aware and sent a small portion of itself out into the cosmos. This piece eventually came to Earth and became Alan's Green Lantern. Because of the connections to the Guardians, that's why he's a Green Lantern, but has nothing to do with the Green Lantern Corps. And shortly before this story, through some shenanigans that I don't remember and don't feel like looking up, Alan was de-aged. He is now roughly 25, but his wife is still a senior citizen. Alright, that's Alan Scott, the Golden Age Green Lantern. Now, before I do the synopsis of this issue, there are a lot of DC's mystic characters that appear here. So here's a quick rundown of the people we are going to encounter in this issue. Since most of them don't do much at all here, I'm only going to give the most basic descriptions of a lot of them. The Golden Age Harlequin, Molly Maine Scott, Alan's second wife. She was a villain in the Golden Age, but not a serious one. She was like Catwoman Light. She only became a criminal, and even then doing the most minor of crimes, to get his attention. We see three JSA members who are dead. Dr. Midnight, our man, and the Atom. These are all members of the JSA who died in the most recent crossover, Zero Hour. The Phantom Stranger. Not much is known about the Stranger. He appears when he's needed and vanishes soon after. He might just be an immortal or a fallen angel. No one knows. He is a stranger. Dr. Occult. Dr. Occult actually predates Superman as he first appeared in New Fun Comics number 6, cover dated October 1935. While Superman didn't come along until 1938, he was also created by the same people, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Though by all accounts, they had already had created Superman by that time, but they weren't able to get him published yet. Dr. Colt is basically your typical hard-boiled 1930s-style detective, but gets involved in mystical cases. He also has a partner, Rose Psychic. Earlier on, from what I remember seeing, she was basically a psychic secretary girlfriend. Later on became more of a partner as they actually um, shared the same form. They would either be Dr. Colt or Rose at different times. Primal Force. Uh, Primal Force was a short-lived team in the mid to late 90s at DC, and uh, this is something I read online that I think is the best description of them. Collection of misfits that was supposed to patrol the darker edges of the DC universe. Baron Winters was a sorcerer at DC Comics. Um, he had his own series, Night Force, where he basically had a collection of people together, kind of like a Mission Impossible style, to do mystic missions. I believe most of the people would usually die. Uh, to hear more about that, you should listen to Ryan Daly's Midnight the Podcasting Hour. He's done several episodes on Night Force. Madame Xanadu is a sorceress at DC Comics, usually portrayed as kind of like a 
storefront psychic, but with actual psychic abilities. Satanus is a villain. Uh, you usually see him working against Superman or Captain Marvel. I mean, Shazam, whatever his name is now. He looks like Satan, which you would expect from a guy named Satanus. John Constantine. John Constantine is a wizard. All right. One day, I need to figure out the difference between warlock, witch, wizard, sorcerer, etc. Especially at the different companies like Marvel and, in this instance, DC. Because I have no idea what the difference is, or if there is one. So I don't know if I'm using the wrong terms for these people. I'm just changing it up so I'm not saying the same damn word over and over and over again. So if you know what it is, please let me know. But just know I'm not using it incorrectly intentionally. Well, I guess I am doing it intentionally since I'm changing the word up, but it's just because I have no idea what the difference is, or if there even is one. Anyway, John Constantine. He operates on more of a street level, and he's one of the more well-known DC magical characters. He had his own series, Hellblazer, that lasted for 300 issues. He's also had a live-action TV show, Constantine, uh, a movie with the same name, but starring Keanu Reeves. He currently is on the DC, on DC's Legends of Tomorrow show on the CW. And a fun fact, he's based on the rock star Sting. Swamp Thing. Okay, Swamp Thing. Seriously. I I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I just feel like if you're a comic fan at all, you have at least a passing knowledge of what Swamp Thing is. So, that. Now, if you don't, alright, go to the show notes. I have a link in there that will be explained in a really entertaining way exactly what Swamp Thing is. Go follow that now, then come back here. Alright. Bloodwind. Bloodwind was a sorcerer who was briefly a member of the Justice League at this time. Zaytana. Zaytana is one of the most popular magical characters at DC Comics. She's even appeared in several other media, including live action on the show Smallville, and was in Batman the Animated Series. Zaytana's day job is she's a stage magician, kind of like Chris Angel, but without being a douche. She works her actual magic by speaking her spells backwards. The Spectre. The Spectre is a Golden Age character. When Detective Jim Corrigan was killed by mobsters, he was offered the chance to come back and get them. And he comes back as the Spectre. As the Spectre, he was pale white, like a dead man or ghost, wearing a green hood and cloak. Later on, it was revealed that Jim Corrigan actually wasn't turned into the Spectre. The Spectre was something that existed before him. It was the, the Spectre is actually the vengeance of God. During biblical times, he was the cause of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the death of the firstborn in Egypt during the time of Moses. At some point, heaven decided he needed to be tempered and would, he would from then on be bound to a human soul. Currently, Jim Corrigan is that soul. Fate. Fate is the new version, well, at this time, <laughs> of the DC of the classic DC Comics character, Dr. Fate. The knife he's going to be using in this issue is made from Dr. Fate's helmet, so it has magical properties of its own. And very early on in his career, maybe his first issue, I never really read it, so I don't know, his arm had been injured and he wrapped it in Dr. Fate's cloak to heal it, which I think caused some weirdness to happen to his arm. For more about Dr. Fate, go listen to the Lords of Order podcast. Dead Man. Boston Brand was a circus acrobat. He worked without a net, and because of that, part of the act he did, he dressed up and called himself Dead Man. One night, that came true because he was shot and killed during his act. He was brought back as a ghost by the, I think, goddess, but I'm not sure what she is, Ramakrishna, and first given the chance to solve his own murder, and then later on to be her agent and do good on Earth. Like I said, Dead Man is a ghost. 
He is unable to affect the real world, but he can possess the living and use their bodies. Blaze. Blaze is another demon lord. She is Satanus' sister, so she looks like a Satan as well. And like Satanus, the two of them usually are bothering Superman or Captain Marvel, Shazam, whatever his name is, and are usually either fighting each other or working together, because, you know, siblings. Dementor, a demon who is the enemy of the Green Lantern, Guy Gardner. Blackbriar Thorn, an ancient druid with wood powers, so of course he's the enemy of Alan Scott. Etrigan the Demon, one of the coolest, in my opinion, of DC's magical characters. Created by Jack Kirby, Etrigan is a demon who is the half-brother to Merlin and will be used to do his brother's bidding. At the fall of Camelot to keep Etrigan from running amok, Merlin bound him to a mortal, Jason Blood. Jason is now immortal and can change into Etrigan when needed, though he can't always control him. Depending on where Etrigan is in the hierarchy of hell, he sometimes speaks in rhyme. And Zaytara, Zaytana's father. Same shtick as Zaytana, he was dead by this point. Well, it's about time we got to the actual issue. Abyss, Hell Sentinel. Written by Scott Peterson, colored by Pat Gary, lettered by Chris Iliopoulos. Iliopoulos? Sure, why not? Edited by Eddie Berganza, cover art by Phil Jimenez, J.H. Williams III, and Mick Gray. Cover dated December 1995, on sale date October 17th, 1995. If you notice, I did not mention the penciler or inker. That's because there was two of each, because this book was divided up into two chapters, each with its own penciler and inker. So we're going to start with chapter one, Over Dark Evil. Penciled by Phil Jimenez, inks by John Stokes. Let's start the cover. Abyss Hell Sentinel. So Abyss is written, it's in green with the top of the letters all flamey looking like, I guess to go along with Alan's Green Lantern powers, because it is like a regular Green Lantern's, except everything has a bit of a flame tinge to it now. On the cover, we see Alan there. He's the main focal point, reaching out towards something. Costume is a little different than the original Golden Age one I described earlier. It's all spandex now. Um, on the bottom here, it looks like the bottom half is all green. Sometimes it looks black in the issue, so I'm not sure which is which. The upper part of his torso is red. Uh, with, <laughs> with way too many stomach muscles. I mean, he has like a 50-pack or something. It's amazing. Anyway, he has green gloves, long green gloves. They're like a little bit past his elbow. He still has the cape with the really high collar, although it looks like it's all green now. And his mask is a little bigger. It's not just a little domino mask. It almost looks like a mini Batman mask. It's a large domino mask, and it has two points on either going up on either side by the eyes, so it looks like a little bat ears. <laughs> and... Behind him, we see images of a whole bunch of the characters I mentioned before. Blackbriar Thorn, Etrigan, Zaytana, Fate, Deadman, Blaze, the Phantom Stranger, Dementor. And overlooking it all, almost like a ghostly image, which makes sense, is the face of the Spectre. It's an alright cover. Both Jimenez and J.H. Williams will do better later on. It's a little busy. So maybe something with just Alan Scott on it would have been a little better than having 80 people on the cover. And going inside, this first chapter, Over Dark Evil, starts with a splash page of Alan held upside down on a tree. It looks like he's almost being crucified on it. Although it's kind of weird. His arms are outstretched. Sorry, I should have specified Alan's actually upside crucified upside down on the tree. So like I said, his arms are outstretched on branches, and there are other branches wrapped around his arms to hold him in. 
but the rest of him isn't the branches aren't wrapped around him branches are growing through him so coming out through his feet and legs through his chest it's pretty horrific actually there's also an image of a raven i think it's a raven at least sitting among the branches holding an eyeball in its mouth i'm not sure it's supposed to be his or somebody else's but oof, it's like a vertigo book now we have an issue coming up here that's going to happen a couple times in this series i'm not going to mention it every single time but his costume changes okay right here now he's not wearing the cape it, you can actually see it on one of the other branches hanging there that's fine but instead of it being the red shirt type thing with the green bottom and green gloves, it's the red shirt area with black gloves and black bottom with red boots. And instead of nothing in the center, there is a green lantern symbol on his chest. This will change, and there'll be times there'll be no symbol on his chest. I don't know. Maybe this was just artistic mistakes, but it's quite a few of them. Or maybe it's supposed to be that the costume is created by his power, so therefore it can change and morph. I'm not sure. Anyway, Alan narrates the, pretty much all of this issue, so let's go with that. I never thought it would end this way. And we get to page two and three, actually, because it's a double-page spread, and it's pretty nice. It's him held on the tree again, and now actually we can see more branches growing through him. By the way, the black parts of his costume are now green. <laughs> And there are even branches going through his eyes. Ugh. And next to him and behind him on here, we have a whole bunch of images of his wife Molly in her, Harle in her Harlequin costume and other versions of it. So in the center of this double-page spread, we have Alan on the tree. And then all around him, we have different images of his wife Molly. We have one of her in her original Harlequin costume, and we have one of her in some kind of, like, Nazi-inspired World War II She-Wolf of the SS outfit holding the Spear of Destiny, which we will talk about it in a minute in the narration, but real quick, the Spear of Destiny is supposed to be the spear that pierced the side of Jesus Christ on his crucifixion, and in DC, that's a real thing, and the retcon reason why the superheroes didn't just go over World War II and beat the crap out of the Nazis was because Hitler had the Spear of Destiny, basically had a sphere of influence around Europe, if anyone superpowered went into that sphere, they were under his control. Even the Spectre couldn't go over there and affect things. Which is why World War II didn't end in 20 minutes. We also see Molly wearing a couple of 90s-inspired, I guess you could say, Harlequin outfits, so they're a lot more revealing. And we even have one of her wearing Alan's original Green Lantern costume. It's pretty cool looking, actually. And Alan says, For 40 years, I've endured the life of a superhero. I was a member of the Justice Society of America the greatest collection of heroes ever assembled, as the Golden Age Green Lantern. I fought Nazis in World War II, although Hitler's Spear of Destiny prevented us from attacking him directly. I even fought my own wife, Molly, when she became a villain known as the Harlequin. And yet, through it all, I always remained Alan Scott, the same regular Joe who just happened to get a power ring that could do anything. And now, as Sentinel, I don't even need the ring. I found I've managed to internalize the power. Yet somehow my life's gone to hell before my eyes. Somehow I'm 25 again, but my wife is still 65, and it's tearing us apart. It's like we're suddenly different people. I don't even know her anymore. And yet I'm terrified I'm going to lose her forever. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Things like this don't really happen to guys like me. Even my worst nightmare, I never dreamt I'd end up in this kind of hell. 
So it was a big lightning blast, and we are in Alan and his wife's, Molly's, place. And they're living in Gotham City now, it says, and wakes them up with a start. And then they realize they're not alone as these giant octopus-looking tentacles start attacking, coming from all over. They're breaking through the headboard of the bed, and they're coming from the ceiling, and the walls are dripping blood. It is pretty horrific. And the tentacles grab Molly and pull her away. So Alan, of course, superheroes up and blasts them away, saves his wife, and then realizes that, well, if this is happening here, and we're living here now, well, I'm not going to stand for this, and he goes out to do the superhero thing. Leaving his wife alone in what I'm assuming is now a blacked-out house, because it's dark, and instead of turning on the lights, she goes for a flashlight. But it doesn't work. As she says, batteries are too old, worthless. Just like me. As Alan said before, the age difference between them now, with him being young and her being their actual age, is affecting their relationship. And obviously she is not happy about the fact. And she pulls out a candle. And if you've been paying attention to Underworld Unleashed, what what Neron does is anyone he's willing to make a deal with, he leaves them this candle. And if they light it, it brings them to him. And she lights it. So Alan's flying through the city, looking to see what's going on. And as he's flying, he's thinking and realizing, what am I doing? We're having issues because I'm 25 again, and my wife's still 65. And here I am rushing out like I am a 25-year-old kid, not thinking, leaving her alone. I've been talking to her for five minutes, making sure she's really okay. So like, I really, before he can think much more about that, he sees these three teenagers, or young adults, it's hard to tell which, running, and they're carrying a knife and covered in blood. So it's a pretty good chance they're up to no good. So he blasts them and stops them and chains them up. They're basically begging him, saying, please save us, we didn't realize it would work. He's like, what? And behind him is a, I'm assuming a demon? It's, again, pretty hideous. It looks like a, it's made up of all kinds of dismembered bodies smushed together into one being. And it's coming for those kids. And I was like, I don't know what the hell you are, but I'm going to deal with you. So he tells the punks to run, because I guess they are the least of the issues right now, least issue right now. And takes it on, even though he is not a fan of dealing with the supernatural. Like he says, I'm a superhero. The supernatural is not really my thing. But nobody does this in my hometown, no matter where you're from. And he takes it out. And there's a trail of it leading back to what looks like a dead woman. He's wondering, did those kids do this? Did they sacrifice her to create that thing? And he lands down by it. It looks like Molly. But then the whole thing vanishes. Oh crap, I left her alone. So Alan shoots on home to find Molly waiting for him there, but it's not the Molly he left. This Molly's young, and she's dressed in an updated Harlequin costume. But thankfully, not any of the trashy-looking ones from the beginning of the issue. This is nice. She has on, like, black, like, Doc Martin-type boots, black and white pinstripe pants, and this black formal, I want to say almost like a woman's tuxedo jacket that's buttoned over... And it has white ruffles around the wrists and around the inside of the uh, top part. So like around her neck and going down around her to where her cleavage is, I guess you could say, her chest. And while it is buttoned down a bit, it doesn't look like it's actually showing cleavage. So it's not trying to be shocking or anything. It's really nice looking. And of course she has on white face makeup. But again, it's very simple. Just mostly white with a little extra red around the eyes and some blue extra around the eyes to to accentuate them. So it's not excessive. It's a really nice-looking Harlequin costume. But of course, Alan's a little concerned and confused because 
she was an L senior citizen when he left, and now she's his age. And he's like, Molly, what did you do? She's like, I, I made a deal. I, that they'd be happy. I'm not too old for you anymore. Alan, I did this for you. And Alan's freaked out by this, obviously. So he heads to the headquarters of the JSA. While he's in the headquarters, we see a mural featuring three of their dead members, Dr. Midnight, Our Man, and The Atom. It's really their only appearance in here. I'm not sure why I mentioned them before, and I was talking about other characters that appeared, but since I did mention them before, I figured I might as well mention their brief cameo in this story. <laughs> so he's here asking for help, even though there's no one there saying, I don't know how to contact you, but I thought this might be a good way. Can you help? And he hears a voice saying that the specter is not here, but perhaps I may assist Sentinel. And it's the Phantom Stranger. It's like, how did you know? He's like, I needed help. The Phantom Stranger tells him, there's a lot of crap going on right now. So trust me, you're not the only one having problems. And I was like, I, I'm being attacked by monsters and demons all of a sudden. My wife's 40 years young. My wife's 40 years younger than she was this morning. And there's nothing in her eyes. Please help me. The Phantom Stranger gives Adam a quick, quick rundown on the fact that there's something going on all over the world. And it's affecting a lot of supernatural heroes. He says that Dr. Cult is in Australia fighting the Cult of the Gloved Hand. Which sounds pretty cool. The Cult of the Gloved Hand. I would, I'm pretty sure nothing has ever been written about that beyond this one little panel. But I would love to see more about that. That sounds like something out of Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, honestly. Anyway, uh, Primal For- the group known as Primal Force has been virtually destroyed by Satanus. Madame Xanadu thought she'd cheat the devil from immortality, but instead she's facing the punishment of that. Baron Winters is trapped in his, uh, is being taunted by demons make, trying to get him to leave his house, which apparently he cannot ever do. We see Swamp Thing and Bloodwind, it looks like, in the swamp fighting some kind of demons. And we see John Constantine having a beer and a smoke. Because that's pretty much what John does. And as the Phantom Stranger tells him, it is as though something is attempting to kill all supernatural heroes. And that something is Neron, a dark force long banished from this plane. Which explains why we have not seen Neron in other issues before. It's not that he's a demon that just didn't bother to show up. He apparently was unable to until now. And he has returned. And now it's like, well, okay, great, Neron. What can we do? It's like, well, your wife sold her soul. It's like a legally binding contract. We can't just break it unless, he's like, unless, unless, I'll take unless. Would you? Are you willing to go to the abyss to fight for her soul? He's like, yeah. It's my wife. Doesn't matter. I gotta go. In which case, the Phantom Stranger says, well, there might be a way. But first, they need to find help. And their first stop is Zaytana, who is doing one of her stage shows. But it is attacked by, well, some kind of demons. They kind of look like giant skinless flying monkeys. If their brain's showing in, they look partially cybernetic. Really weird. Do have to hand it to Jimenez for some of the designs here of the demons. It looks pretty cool and not just generic demon. So her and Alan make short work of them, and he's asking for telling them why he, they're, uh, they're looking for her and need her help. And she tells him, you're the original Green Lantern, right? You are my dad's heroes. Yeah, I'm in. And our scene switches to a bar. And the bartender is talking to the, one of their customers saying, you always come in, you just get a beer, but you don't touch it. Like, what are you, a priest? He's like, nope. It's like, so why are you coming here? He's like, I like to come here to relax. Because I, but <laughs> it's crazy. It, you're packed here. And up until today, this place was a dive that would never have any customers. And now all of a sudden it's filled and jumping. What happened? You'd almost think somebody sold their soul to the devil. 
of course, I always heard that deals like that never quite turn out the way you expect them. And as we can see, as he's talking, we have roaches starting to show up. And it's not just some roaches. There are thousands of roaches all of a sudden swarming this place and driving all the customers out. And at that moment, Phantom Stranger, Zaytana, and Sentinel show up. And Zaytana does her backwards magic and makes the roaches all go away. And it turns out that that patron at the bar, who is still sitting there, is Jim Corrigan, the Spectre. Except he's not the Spectre now, because apparently the Spectre made a deal with Neuron, and they're separated. So they can't count on his help. But they want hit. They want Jim Corrigan, because even though he's not the Spectre, all his time with the Spectre has given him a lot of knowledge, and that would be very useful. And they just have to go to find one more person. They teleport to an empty field to get their last member. And in that empty field, Fate teleports in, being attacked by skeletons. And the Phantom Stranger doesn't even wait for anything. He just says, Jared Stevens, we require your help. Fate's like, yeah, that's great. But, uh, you know, I can kind of use a hand here because <laughs> Skeleton Demon's attacking me. But Alan makes quick work of them, blasts them away. And Fate had been lost because actually the last issue of his series, which I think was number 13, that came out before this issue, he and Sentinel were fighting demons. And in the course of that, he got stuck out of this in another dimension and he's apparently been spending the last week trying to get back and now he is it's like thanks for the help i'd love to help you but listen i've just been gone for the last week fighting skeletons um i could use a break and hey who's that but he's not talking to any of that looking at any of the characters that are here he's looking up where no one is but the phantom stranger knows he says sentinel just cast your green flame above and all will be clear <laughs> alan's like okay and he does but uh, someone shows up it's Dead Man. And thanks to Alan's power, we can they can actually see and interact with him. And Jared's like, that's great. Good luck to you all. But I'd love to help, but count me out. Um, Sentinel, you're not going to shame me into... And Sentinel's just staring at him. And Fate says, ah, oh, cripes. Because that means he's in. End chapter one. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And now we're on Chapter 2, Into the Abyss. Pencils by J.H. Williams III, inks by Mick Gray. They go to a place that fate thinks is hell, but it's not what he imagined hell to look like, because while it is full of demons and monsters, they're all, it looks like a bar or a nightclub, and they're all dressed really nice. You know, they're actually, we see demons wearing tuxedos and fancy dresses. Zaytan realizes this is not hell. This is Tanarak's bar. I'm assuming Tanarak, because I didn't think to look him up before, sorry, is a demon or warlock who has a bar that caters to demons and monsters. And he's not happy with them there. He wants them to leave. Doesn't care what's going on. He's like, get out. I don't serve your kind here. 
and they, our heroes realize that they are surrounded by monsters ready to attack. But Zatanna does not care. She's like, look, we're going to be opening a portal here. Deal. And she opens the portal and sends Sentinel, Fate, the Stranger, and Jim Corrigan through while her and Dead Man stay to guard it. Our four have traveled through the portal to another place that Fate thinks is hell. <laughs> Poor Fate. He keeps thinking like, oh, so now we're in hell. And everyone's like, no, 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 we're still not in hell. It's like, just just shut up and go for the ride. <laughs> Poor Fate. I mean, first he gets shanghaied into this. Or, well, not shanghaied, guilted into this. And now he, no one's telling him where they're going. They keep going to these horrible, you know, place more horrible than the last. He's like, oh, we're in hell now? No, now we're in hell? And they're just being like an idiot child. <laughs> it's actually a little amusing. But before they berate him too much, we see Blaze is there, along with Molly's soul. And Blaze is like, you want this? You can have it. You just have to defeat some old friends, and we have Blackbriar Thorn, Etrigan the Demon, and Dementor. Blaze says, if you fail, I hope you're prepared to stay for a while. But then the Spectre shows up, because he cannot stand by while such evil is running around. Unfortunately, he's told by... Now, it's hard to tell here. I think it's Dementor. Maybe it's Blaze. It's a little hard to tell here. Or maybe it's just some other random demon. But either way, the Spectre's told, yeah, you didn't read the fine print on your deal, did you? You can't act. You're Neuron's bitch, basically. God might be a little mad with you. You should have thought of this first. And while everyone's distracted by that, Blackbriar Thorn grabs Molly and flies off for her and dumps her in some kind of demented forest. I remember reading somewhere in some versions of Hell, I think this comes from Dante's Inferno, that that's it's like a, it's like a forest of suicides. Or maybe it's from the Sandman. Or maybe the same man took it from Dante's Inferno, I'm not sure which. But yeah, I remember reading in some versions of Hell somewhere that the souls of those who commit suicides are this, like become this, these trees in this demented forest just crying out for the help that they never got in life. And of course it's wood because Alan's still vulnerable to wood. And he flies after them. And Blackbire Thorne's like, good, because what, what do I want? I want you. And while Alan is taking on Blackbriar Thorn, Fate is facing off against Etrigan, the demon, who does not seem to be particularly impressed with this version of Fate and breathes fire in his face. Which apparently Fate's immune to, because it doesn't hurt him. Although Etrigan backhanding him does seem to hurt a little bit. And while that's going on, the Phantom Stranger is taking on Blaze, who he thinks is going to lose. But all of a sudden... She has giant hands coming up out of the ground, grabbing him, and while he's incapacitated, showing him, not only are you not going to do as well as you think you are, but look what's happening back at the club. And we see back at that bar where we left Zaytana and Deadman, things aren't going too well for them. They are surrounded by an army of monsters and the dead, and one of them is Zaytana's own father, Zaytara. And zombie Zaytara is facing off against Zaytana, his daughter, asking her, Zaytana, why? Why didn't you save me? Why are you trying to hurt me? So, Zaytan is a bit sh- bit rattled, obviously. And back to fate against the demon. The demon thinks that fate's still going to be pretty easy pickings. Because, ooh, you have a knife. Except, remember, like I told you before about fate, this isn't just any knife. This is a knife made from the helmet of Dr. Fate. So it is imbued with a lot of magical power. And as the Etrigan goes to punch his lights out, <laughs> the knife gets stabbed right through his fist. And hurts him a lot. But Etrigan just pulls the knife out and tosses it, breathes fire into his hand, which apparently heals it. And at this point, he is a rhymer, like I said before. 
depending where he is in the hierarchy of hell, the more powerful he is. Apparently that's one thing they do with demons is the more powerful you are, you could actually become a speak and rhyme. And Etrigan's a rhymer at this point because he says, I expected far less, thought one punch and he'd fall. But now I can see we'll have fun after all. So we're back to Alan against Blackbriar Thorn. And Alan says, okay, you want me? You got me. And Ma's like, no, this is a trick. But Blackbriar Thorn's like, no, he knows I'm speaking the truth. I don't want you. I want him. But you're half right. It is a trick. Take him and the trees grab him and start not only hold him, but they're piercing his hands and his feet. And I was right about the whole suicide farce. Maybe it comes from here because Blackbriar Thorn tells him, Thou may have heard that those who commit suicide shan't make it to heaven. Well, tis true. You see, they end up here. And as they're now made of wood, they're mine to command. So Alan's now trussed up like we saw in the beginning. And while that's happening, of course, Etrigan is beating the crap out of Fate. But Fate, besides having made a knife out of the helmet of Nebu, he also made a couple of these small, onk-shaped throwing knives. And one gets thrown, and apparently, actually it's not even thrown, he has it in his hand, and Etrigan knocks it out of his hand. But as, as Jared says, funny thing about a weapon of order, no matter, no matter how you throw it, it always hits its mark, and its throat goes right into Etrigan's back. And while that's happening, the Spectre is attempting to rebel against the deal he made with Neron, and he's fighting Dementor. And it's actually pretty cool. The Spectre turns into a whole bunch of green and white vultures. We're starting to eat the Mentor, which is pretty awesome, actually. And we're back again to Fate vs. Etrigan. One thing about this book. So, like, every page goes to another one of the fights. Fate vs. Etrigan, Phantom Stranger and Blaze, Black Thor and Green Lantern, Spectre and Dementor. Reading it, it works well, because it's almost like an action movie. You know, you're getting the scenes here, and then you go back, you know... Then the scenes of the next one, then the scenes of the next one. And it does create a nice little sense of tension. But talking about it, it's kind of a pain because we're like, okay, we're at this fight. Okay, now we're at this fight. Okay, we're now at this fight. <laughs> anyway, Etrigan's a sick little puppy. And the more fate actually is doing well against him in a fight, the more Etrigan's liking it. <clears throat> again, you surprise me. And again, you entice me. For now, I'll just crack your ugly head and drop kick it away to make sure you're dead. I love Etrigan's rhymes. But Fate's not having this anymore, and he pulls off the bandages on his one arm. Remember I said before his arm was damaged? I guess I didn't realize how damaged, because he pulls off the bandages on his arm, and it doesn't look like an arm anymore. It's just a mass of red flesh, like skinless muscle and sinew. But there's more than there would be for an arm, because it just kind of shoots out and completely captures Etrigan to the point where he basically gives up, and he says the mystical chant... So gone, gone, poor Etrigan, rise once more in form of man, and turns into poor Jason Blood, who looks, who's looking around going, what the hell is happening to me? And back with Blaze against the Phantom Stranger, she's showing them things aren't going well for Zaytana and Deadman, but they're actually going to go better than she hopes, because while Zaytana is, understandably, having an issue fighting her father, Deadman possesses her and makes the uh, creature that's posing as her father reveal itself. And it's actually not her father, but it's this large, naked, demon-looking demon. He's really creepy-looking. Kind of like if Jabba the Hutt actually had legs. That's what it looks like. 
So now that he's confident that they're doing well well enough there, back there, he's able to turn his attention to the fights here. And he tells Jared Stevens, fate, to leave Jason Blood alone as it's not his fault that the demon was working against them. Back to the Alan Blackbire Thorn fight. So Alan's trussed up upside down and Blackbire Thorn breaks off one of the bank branches of those trees, which, ow, because those are souls. I'm not sure if that hurts him or not, but that sounds wrong. And goes to stab Alan right in the chest with it. But it doesn't work. He's able to blast it away. And they're both shocked. Because apparently he doesn't, as a sentinel now, he doesn't seem to have a weakness to wood anymore. But he just can't rip himself free of the trees because they are living, they are souls. And to him, it would be like ripping off their arms and he doesn't want to do that to them. Which works in his favor. Because the trees basically say, he wouldn't do any more harm to us than we did ourselves. But we actually can see now somebody cares about us. Someone we don't even know cares about us, that he's risking his life to not hurt us. We're free. Which means Alan's able to be free too, because now he's not worried about hurting them. He says, I should kill you, Thorn. But he didn't say he just puts him in a cage there, he's, because as, he, as Alan says, but the way I figure, you're already in hell. And grabs his wife and flies off. And he lands right by all the others. And don't worry about Blaze, because the Spectre, after having taken her Dementor, because the Spectre takes care of Blaze, just... Boom! Nice little mystical blast, and she's out. And now she's surrounded because, of course, everyone else has won their battles. But Blaze is not deterred. She said, that's great, you saved her. You think that's the real battle. That's not the real battle. And she leaves laughing because Neron has showed up, finally. And everyone realizes that, uh-oh. Because Neron shows up like Darth Vader, basically, saying, so you've gained my attention. Now, if Neron there... They all know they're screwed. They can't take on Neron. They don't have enough power between the five, four of them, I think it's there. Yeah, four of them. And, uh, no, sorry, the three of them. The three of them. Alan, Fate, and the Phantom Stranger. And the Spectre, because of the deal, while he was able to take out Dementor and Blaze, he can't take out Neron. He can't take him on at all. So Alan does the thing that a superhero does. You all get home, get my wife home safe, because that's what we came to save. I'll hold him off. But it doesn't work out the way Alan wants. Because our last page of captions, I never thought it would end this way. For 40 years, I've endured the life of a superhero. I was a member of the Justice Society of America, the greatest collection of heroes ever assembled. And yet through it all, I always remained Alan Scott, the same regular Joe who just happened to have the power to do anything. Yet somehow, my life's gone to hell before my eyes. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Things like this don't really happen to guys like me. Even my worst nightmare, I'd, I never dreamt I'd end up in this kind of hell. And Alan is tied up, still tied up upside down, not to a tree, and thankfully the tree's not growing through him, but he's apparently been shrunk down, and he's just a little amulet on Neron's chest. He's his prisoner, and probably forced to suffer watching whatever ne- horrible things Neron actually does. This was good. This was a good issue. Like I said, one of my only issues was with the art was because of, uh, the symbol on Alan's chest would change from nothing to a sentinel symbol, which would just look like a green explosion of light, to the Green Lantern symbol. But I'm assuming, since the costume was created by his power, that that probably goes by what he... That was probably was intentionally by the artists. That depends on how Alan was feeling about himself. And, hey, I'm sorry, art by J.H. Williams and Phil uh, Jimenez? That's an awesome book. So this was quite enjoyable. I really did like it. Was it necessary for the story of Underworld Unleashed? No, you could read Underworld Unleashed 1 to 3, and you don't need this. But it was enjoyable. 
and it was a nice little side story. I would definitely recommend this. I even enjoyed the Ray story, and I would still, if I had to recommend one, I would recommend this over the Ray story. It's time to go over the feedback. And this episode, we're going to feedback for two things. First, episode 82, in which we covered Warlock number 10, and also the promo I released for the best event ever crossover. So, first of all, on Facebook, the post for episode 82 was liked and shared by Dan Ostroff, Joe Sedano, Baruch Nahan, Jesse Starcher, John M. Wilson, Joe Crawford, Chris Matthews, Pat Sampson, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Mike Peacock, Aaron Head Moss, Gene Hendricks, and Guntum Shuoren. The promo for Best Event Ever was liked and shared by Joe Sedano. On Twitter, the post about episode 82 was retweeted and liked by Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Comics in the Golden Age, Coffee and Comics, Nerdy Dad's Podcast, The Liquid Awesome, and Jason Snake Venable. The post for the Best Event Ever promo was retweeted and liked by Between the Pages, Coffee and Comics, Hicks, Low 456, EMZT Podcasts and Productions, Jeffrey Brown, The Brocast Podcast, Nerdy Dad's Podcast, Tommy F. Oler, Gal Walks into a Comic Shop, and Christian and Damon's Amazing Nerd Show. I also want to thank a few more people who have been following our blog on Tumblr. So thank you to No Man's Sky Blog, Train Likes Comics, Absolute Tar Heel, The God King Joker, and Fu Manchu 2112. So if you want to be involved in all this, go follow us on the different versions of social media. Of course, there's a Tumblr page, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. You can follow us on there. There's our Facebook page. Just go on the Facebook and type Type in the search box, Adam Warlock, will pop up pretty much at the top. On Twitter, follow us there, at Adam Thanos Pod. Of course, you can always send an email, resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. I love to get emails, and I will read that on the air. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. That would be even more awesome. We haven't gotten a review in a little while. I would like to get a new one. Be that person, and it will be read on the air. And if you want more... Go to listen to my other show, The Pop Culture Palace Presents. The newest episode, episode 17, was part of the Best Event Ever crossover as well. And we covered The Ray, number 17, written by the awesome Christopher Priest. Now that we've finished up the feedback, it is time to get to the Friends and Enemies segment of this show. And in case you've forgotten, or this is your first episode, which, since we're doing a crossover, it just might be. Who knows? To explain, in the Friends and Enemies segment... The issue we covered this episode came out in December 1995. So what we do is we take a look at all the series we've already covered so far in this show, and we see where they were at December 1995. Let's begin. The Avengers, number 393, Dark Days Dawn, by Bob Harris, Terry Cavanaugh, Ben Robb, Mike Diodato Jr., and Tom Palmer. Earth's Mightiest Heroes zero in on Marilla's Killer, and it's none other than the Golden Avenger, Wow, what in the world has happened to Tony Stark? This is part of the crossing. Mm, less said about that, the better. Moving on. Captain Marvel number one, Junior Achievement, by Fabian Nicieza, Benes, and Mike Sellers. Did the son of Captain Marvel kill 2,000 people, or was he framed for murder? And yes, this is the first series featuring Janice Vell, the son of the original Captain Marvel. 
This series did not last very long. I think it was only about five or six issues. I've never actually read it. I'm curious. I'll have to go back to it one day. But yeah, only a couple issues. Did not last as long as his next series, which is the one that came out of the Avengers Forever miniseries, written by Peter David, and definitely one of the high points of Marvel at that time, as far as I'm concerned. Daredevil, number 347. Inferno, part 3. Not the X-Men crossover Inferno. As far as I know, has nothing to do with it. By J.M. DeMatteis, Ron Wagner, Ron McCain Jr., and Bill Reinhold. Sir goes on a rampage in the red Daredevil costume, and the original red and yellow DD shows up to take him down. Really don't know much about Daredevil at this time, so I can't comment whether it was good or not. I do remember seeing the covers of these issues when it was coming out, and it did seem like there was like two or three different Daredevils running around. This was not the greatest time period for Marvel, as far as I'm concerned. This was at a time when they wanted to split up their books into into, into different editorial fiefdoms. So you had the X books over here, the Avengers books over here, and then like you had a group called like Marvel Edge, which basically was just the books were not really sure what else to do with them. So you had Daredevil, Hulk, Punisher, all in this one group together, like they were related to each other. Didn't really make sense. Anyway, Fantastic Four, number 407, Reunion, by Tom DeFalco, Paul Ryan, and Danny Bolognati. Strange Days, Part 2, guest starring Ant-Man, Scott Lang, and Namor. The cover says it all. Reed returns. Nuff said. And yep, if you look at the cover of this issue, it's Reed Richards all over the cover. However, he is looking very unshaven and disheveled and a little haunted even. I know this is the time period when Reed was dead, or, well, believed dead. So I guess this is when he comes back. Fantastic ass has not gone up to this yet. Uh, so we got a couple years before that happens. The Incredible Hulk, number 436. Uncovered by Peter David, Angel Medina, and Robin Riggs. Ghosts of the Future, part one. The government has found the Hulk's home, and an enemy with connections to Hulk's past comes back to haunt him. This, as far as I'm concerned is one of the highlights of Marvel at this time. Peter David's one of the Hulk. Awesome from beginning to end. Plus, thinking about it now, Hulk got some of the best artists just before they became really hot. But they had them all. I mean, Todd McFarlane was on here before he did Spider-Man. They got Dale Keown for a while. They had Liam Sharp. And now Angel Medina. I really gotta reread this one one pretty time soon. Oh yeah, still recording. Iron Man number 323, Innocent Eyes by Dan Abnett, Terry Cavanaugh, Jim Cheung, Yancey Labatt, Hector Oliveira, Ray Garcia, and Mark McKenna. You know it's going to be a good issue and has that many people just to write and, write and do the art for it. <laughs> Guest starring the Avengers. Story continued from War Machine number 21. The killer stands revealed and his identity will absolutely shock you. Well, no, actually it won't because the story continues into Avengers 393. So we know who the killer is. Plus, it's part of the crossing, so... Superman, The Man of Steel, number 51. Wanted by Louise Simonson, John Bogdanov, and Dick Giordano. The Trial of Superman, part 5 of 12. Superman and the two remaining fugitives meet Freelance, who has been sent by the tribunal to retrieve them, but they convince him to switch sides. Meanwhile, the Superman rescue squad is separated from Alpha Centaurian, who Superboy suspects is really the cyborg. Wasn't reading Superman at this time, so I can't say anything about the story, positive or negative. 
but I am really amused by the cover, which features Superman sword fighting with a space pirate. Seriously, go look it up. And finally, we have Thor number 493, Rundown, by Warren Ellis and Mike Diodato Jr., World Engine, Part 3. Kurzan pursues his research into Norse myths as well as media accounts of Thor and Asgard. Thor and the Enchantress begin to fall in love and explore a relationship with each other. So, Thor and the Enchantress. Weird. But it's Warren Ellis writing, so you kind of have to expect weird. This show can now be found on Stitcher. In case you don't know what Stitcher is, Stitcher is Radio On Demand, a free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discovered from 20,000 others. Available on iOS... Android, Nook, and iPad. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. Have you ever wanted to be more than you are? Are you worried your full potential isn't enough? Ever wonder finding that out is worth your soul? Best Event Ever is back for 2018 with DC's 1995 event, Underworld Unleashed. Several blogs and podcasts are coming together to examine the effects these questions have on the heroes and villains of the DC Universe. Join Justice's First Dawn, Comic Reviews by Walt, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Pop Culture Palace, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and Between the Pages, among others, as they examine the effects these questions have on characters like Ted Knight, Blue Devil, Sentinel, The Martian Manhunter, and Darkseid. Follow them all using hashtag BestEventEver2018 and hashtag UnderworldReUnleashed across social media all throughout October. Go ahead. Blow out that candle. Neuron is waiting. That's all for this time. Hope you enjoyed this little look at Underworld Unleashed. I've been reading a lot of the issues. I'm enjoying it a lot so far. So please go check out the other episodes of the crossover. Of course, you can always just go on social media and put in hashtag best event ever and use that to find them. But I'll give you a little bit of a cheat sheet right here. Of course, there's my other show, Pop Culture Palace Presents. We already have an episode up on the Ray issue 18 and there should be one up in a f- within a few days of this coming out on the Ray issue 19 of course Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode 109 kickstarted the whole event and they covered Underworld Unleashed number one uh, Mark Sweeney's ITG uh, podcast has covered Starman issue 13 and Showcase 95 number 12 I believe that's an issue of The Shade dealing with this plus he has also covered Underworld Unleashed number two if you follow him on Twitter, which is at ITG Blogcast, he does little mini reviews of uh, several of the issues that no one else is covering. So you can follow him on there and just catch up little snippets of, of some of the other issues. Comic Reviews by Walt has already covered uh, Green Lantern issue 68. The blog Between the Pages will be looking at the DC Villains Dark Judgment trading card set. They haven't done it yet, but even if they don't post it, go check them out. The last several days, they've been covering these awesome pumpkin carvings of different comic characters. They look really, really cool. You should check them out. Justice First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, is covering Extreme Justice 10 and 11. I've read those issues. They are horrible. 
you should go listen to that podcast because they deserve your listen. They deserve the downloads for suffering through that. Go listen to them. Of course, there's also Professor Allen with Relatively Geeky Presents, episode 13, as he basically does an overall coverage of the entire storyline. Justice Trek, the podcast, is handling uh, the three-part Casket of Justice story. It's from Just League America 105 and 106 and Rebels 95, number 13. Those episodes are up. You can go listen to them. Uh, Diablo Frank's Idol Head of Diablo podcast is supposed to be covering Just League Task Force. I haven't. That's not out yet, but... He does have an episode of Diana Prince Wonder Woman, which looks at the cheetah. And that's it. Now, you don't have to go memorize what I just told you. Go to the show notes. The links are all in there. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended, or happening, or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle, both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peacelovproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. Took longer than I thought to do. Alright, thankfully I'm done with crossovers and demons for now. No more. Greetings, worshippers of uh, Thanos. Who? Mephisto? What the hell are you doing? Aw oh, man. Does this mean I have to do another crossover? Wait. Worshippers? But I'm the only one here. Hi! Hi! Who the hell are these guys?